All right, Titus. I hope you're there uh, now. Titus is a uh, short but fascinating little book. As one commentary uh, writer I read this week said, you really get your money's worth out of this little book because there's a lot packed in to these three little brief chapters. Uh, as many of you know, Titus is, is actually a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a man named, any guesses? Titus, you guys are brilliant. Room full of Bible scholars here at New Life. Uh, yeah, he wrote it to a young man named uh, Titus. Titus was a young man, the best uh, we can tell from the scriptures. Titus was likely led to faith in Jesus by the apostle Paul himself. He, he would have been mentored. He would have been discipled by Paul. And Titus had become a leader himself in the early church uh, movement. And so Titus would travel, it seems, with Paul on Paul's uh, missionary journeys as Paul would go into all of these places and he would preach the resurrected Jesus and then he would gather the new believers together into churches and then he would establish leaders to lead those brand new churches full of those brand new believers. And on this particular occasion, Paul traveled to an island called Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And Crete was a hard place. Crete was famous for their immorality. They were famous for their loose living. Uh, the Cretans were known uh, across the world as dishonest, lazy, greedy, immoral people. Like that was just their culture. That was their reputation. And this week, as I was trying to just think of like a modern equivalent to help you understand what Crete was like, uh, the only thing that kind of came to my mind in the U.S. would be like Las Vegas, maybe. I've never even been to Vegas, but I just know it's called Sin City. So maybe, maybe it's like Vegas or something like that. But I suspect that even Vegas is probably a poor comparison because I think Crete was just on another level of wickedness. Like the best example I can think of that I've experienced is my wife Cheryl and I, one time we were uh, living in Asia, went to a missions conference uh, in a city called Pattaya in, in Thailand. And uh, Pattaya is this, kind of this coastal town in Thailand and it's famous worldwide for its red light district. So this place is just absolutely saturated with immorality and prostitution. I mean, you name it, it's just like in your face there. You walk down the roads or you drive down the road, there are literally there are people aggressively inviting you to participate in the immorality there. And so people literally from all over the world will come to this town in Thailand because it's famous for its immorality. And Crete, I guess, was, was maybe sort of like that. They were just famous for their evil. And so Paul goes to this island of all places, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus. And people believe. They believe in this resurrected king, and they give their lives to him. And Paul plants all these churches and all these cities all over the island of Crete for these new believers, and he leaves his protege, Titus, in Crete as Paul moves on to other places to preach the gospel of Jesus. And then he writes this letter back to young Titus to instruct him uh, in what he's to do or what he's to be about in Crete. Now, if you're a young pastor, uh, Crete is not the assignment you want, okay? So like you graduate from seminary and you put your top three places, Crete's not even on the list. You don't want to go to Crete. Crete is hard work. Crete is really messy people, but Paul believes that Titus is up to the task, and so for Titus, Crete it is. And Paul is writing Titus in this messy place with these messy 
people, and he's painting for Titus a portrait of a healthy church. So even in the, even in the chaos of a place like Crete, Paul is saying to young Titus, this is what a gospel-centered, this is what a Jesus-exalting church should look like. And for the last 2,000 years, we've had this blueprint for what a healthy church looks like. And so for the next four weeks, for the month of November, together as a faith family, we'll be kind of unpacking what a healthy church looks like based on Paul's letter to Titus all those many years ago. Now, here's what we're going to see Paul do in this letter. He's going to argue that a healthy church is built uh, fundamentally on two key principles. One is godly leadership. The other is sound biblical doctrine, so biblical truth. We'll also see Paul emphasizes this truth that there's this inseparable link between our belief, what we say we believe, and our behavior. So like, there's, there's this connection between what we actually believe and how we live out our lives. And so those are the primary themes uh, that we'll see over the course of the next three or four weeks And with that backdrop in place, let's jump into the letter itself. Titus 1, beginning in verse 1. God willing, we'll cover the first nine verses of the chapter together this morning. This is the apostle writing. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is another word for believers or followers of Jesus. And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now that's quite a greeting, isn't it? I mean, most of us, we greet each other with a text message or an email, and it's kind of like, hey, what's up, dude? How, how you doing? And that's like the best we can come up with. And Paul, on the other hand, condenses a theology book into about three sentence greeting here. That's impressive stuff. That's why Paul wrote most of the New Testament and you and I didn't, right? There's a, there's a ton packed into this greeting alone. As I was kind of sifting through this this week, I thought, my goodness, I could, I could preach like one or two, possibly two sermons just from the greeting <laughs> easily. Now, we're not going to do that. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, but we do, I do want you to see just a couple of really key things in the greeting before we move on and get into the meat of the letter itself. So here, here's the first thing that I don't want us to miss right here in the greeting is Paul's contention that our beliefs drive our behavior. Look at verse one again. He says, Paul, a servant of God, apostle Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, right? So our head knowledge, our understanding of the gospel, which accords or connects to with what? Godliness. So Paul is saying, listen, for followers of Jesus, there is this connection. There is this connect point between our knowledge of the truth, our head knowledge of the gospel of Jesus, and godliness. Like this idea of living a godly, holy life. So Paul is painting for us here a picture of transformation. He's saying, Titus, the gospel, young brother, should affect your life. It should affect the way that you actually live. And the people in the churches in Crete, they should understand this. If they say that they know God, if they say that they love God, if they say that they're followers of Jesus and their lives don't reflect that transformation, there's a disconnect there, somewhere in there, that should be alarming to them, that should be of concern to them. And he's going to expand on this thought in more detail as we get into the 
letter in the following weeks. So here, here's the first point. Don't miss this. The gospel of Jesus is transformational. Now, Paul experienced this himself. If you know the story of Paul, Paul was a Jesus hater. He had devoted his life to crushing Christians, to destroying the church, until that one day on a road somewhere else, he met Jesus. And Paul went from a terrorist, and he went from an enemy of the cross of Christ to the greatest missionary and theologian in history who just gave his life away preaching about this Jesus to anybody who would listen. See, Jesus, Jesus may be a lot of things, but non-life-changing isn't one of them. Like, that's not an option on the table. If you know Jesus, your life changes. Like, maybe not overnight, and we never live perfectly, but Jesus is transformational. And Paul wanted Titus to understand this, and more importantly, he wanted these brand new Christians in Crete, in a crazy place called Crete, to understand this, that Jesus is transformational. It's not just head knowledge. It's head knowledge that actually affects and transforms your heart and your life and the way that you live. And so Paul was saying, look, you people living in Crete, you brand new believers, even though you live in this chaotic, crazy culture that tells you it's okay to live in a certain way, I want you to understand that Jesus gives us another way. Jesus gives us a better way. And so follow him, imitate his life. And the second thing that I think we need to see in the greeting before we move on is this beautiful promise in verse two, where he says, listen, we, we live this godly life that's connected to our knowledge of the truth. We live this life, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So Paul is saying, listen, believers, we live lives of hope. Like not, not just lives of hope on this planet, but lives of eternal hope, because God has promised this to his children since before the beginning of time. And this isn't hope like maybe the way some of us think of hope, like, man, I hope when I die, I get in. Like there's a 50-50 chance, and I just hope it works out in the end. I just hope I, I kind of slip in. No, this is, a, this is a confident hope. This is an assured hope. Why? Because the same God who resurrected Jesus from the dead has promised to do it. Right Now, this would have been absolutely massive for the, the Cretans who, in their culture, they couldn't trust anyone, right? Like lying and deceit was such an embedded part of their culture that trust in Crete was almost impossible. And so maybe some of you are there right now in your life, right? You've been wounded, you've been betrayed, you've been stabbed in the back so many times that you've just built layers and walls around your heart and you don't let anybody in. And Paul was saying to these believers in Crete, and maybe God is saying to you this morning, you need to understand, God is not like that. God is not like that. His promises are rock solid. Like That's a solid foundation. You can build your life on his promises. You can stake your life on his promises. And because of that, we, as his followers, as believers, we can live lives full of hope. So that's number two. Jesus' followers are people of hope. Like our lives should just drip with hope, right? Our, our lives should, should be distinctly different from uh, Pastor Mike was just describing. He got back to, this, to the States, and you could just see the frazzled, worried nature of, of the American culture. 
Right? That we just live in this perpetual state of stress and being so concerned and being overwhelmed by anxiety. And Paul is just saying, look, as believers, as sons and daughters of the king of this universe, our life should just drip with hope. Like people around us, our culture should see us as the people of hope. When people feel hopeless and helpless, like we should be the first place they look for help and hope. Now why? Because we have a great God and we have a resurrected king and he has promised good for his sons and his daughters. He's promised us hope. That's the gift that we have to give to the world around us. Now there's plenty more we could say about this greeting, uh, but we need to move on. So what Paul's about to do in the next section, and he's about to contend that a healthy church must be led by godly leaders. Now, my suspicion is that not many of you, perhaps a couple of you weirdos, but not many of you woke up this morning and poured yourself a hot cup of coffee and thought, man, I sure hope Chris is gonna preach about elders today. Like, that'd be lovely. That'd be really riveting. But my, my hope is that as you leave this place this morning, that you would see why this should be important to you. That because we love Jesus, we should also love his bride, the local church. And if you love his bride, you should care about how it's led and how it's shepherded. Right? So my, my hope is that at least after today, that if you're out in the community and you invite someone to church, and I hope we're all inviting people in our circle that need God, people that are far from God, that need to be near to him, I hope we're all inviting them so they can taste and see that God is good. But my hope is that as you invite people to come with you to new life or your small group or to dinner or whatever, and they were to ask you, if they were to ask you, hey, like how is your church structured? Like how is your church led? My hope is that after today, you would be able to explain this to them. Like, like, you wouldn't just say, like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know. There's, like, this dude, Chris, and he talks a lot. There's this guy, Mike, and he sings a lot. Like, I want all of us to have a very biblical and clear understanding of what a healthy church is and how a healthy church should be led in a healthy way. So with that, let's go. Let's jump right in. Uh, verse number five. Paul says, this is why I left you. He's talking to Titus and Crete. So that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town or every church in every town as I directed you. So Paul goes, look, Titus, I just want to remind you of why I left you in Crete. In case you forgot, young brother, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Now this Greek word order is actually comes from the Greek uh, root word orthos, from which we get our word orthodontics, right? So it's this idea of putting braces on our kids' teeth that drains our bank account, but it makes their teeth straight. Like he's taking something that's crooked and making it straight. And Titus, Paul is saying, Titus, this is what you're to do with the churches in Crete. Orthos. You're to put it into order. You're to structure it in a godly way. And I think sometimes in the Christian world, in the church world, we sort of buck against order and structure as if somehow it's unspiritual. I just want you to understand this morning, our God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. He's not a haphazard God, and he doesn't intend for his church, the bride of Jesus, to function that way either. And so Paul says to Titus, put things in order. Put things in orthos. And Titus, the first step to a healthy church, he says, is to appoint elders in every town. He says, every church 
should have a group of called out, set aside men to shepherd the flock. And these men should have certain defining characteristics that absolutely mark their lives. This isn't just a role for anyone. And so Paul starts to paint the portrait of a healthy church by painting a picture of healthy leaders within the church. And he does this, and we all know this to be true. Any movement, any organization, any business, any sports team will always only be as healthy as its leadership. Like a church, a church will never rise above its leadership. So it's critical, it's absolutely crucial that churches get this right. That's why the very first thing Paul tells Titus is you need to get the right leaders in place in these churches. Right? Because if you don't, the whole thing's going to unravel. The whole thing is just going to implode and fold in on itself. Now, if you're, if you're like me and you grew up in a, a church culture, I grew up, I've told you guys before, I grew up in a very uh, Baptistic church culture. So if you grew up like me in a church culture that didn't have elders, uh, you might think that this concept is really weird. Like, man, are these guys, what are they, cult leaders or something like that? I had a, actually had a guy come up to me three or four weeks ago. I was at a, one of my kids' soccer games. And uh, I, he's not, I don't know him from here, so it's not one of you guys. But he came up to me, and I hadn't seen him in a while. We were just talking, catching up. He said, hey, how's the new church going? How's new life? How are things going there? And oh, everything's going really wonderful. And I was just kind of sharing with him what's going on at new life. And, and then he moves on. He says, you guys don't have like that weird elder thing, do you? Like that weird elder structure thing. Because like, my church, we got this new elder thing. It was really weird. I don't understand what's going on. And I think that's, like, that's the impression a lot of people have in the church world. is like this is a new or trendy idea. And I just want to tell people, like, this is 2,000 years old, man. We're just returning to Scripture. This is not new school. We're going really old school, right? And fortunately, new life was planted 21 years ago with elder leadership. So it's just always been a part of our DNA here at New Life. And just so you know, elders are just qualified godly men who have been called by God and set apart by the church to lovingly shepherd and give directional leadership to a local church family. And the New Testament uses several words interchangeably. It uses the word elder, the word overseer, and the word pastor. They're all just synonymous. But our elders are our directional leaders at New Life, just the way that the New Testament prescribes and lays out for us. So just so you know how it works here, I'm one of uh, 11 elders at New Life. Two of us are on staff. Nine of us are not on the church staff. They're guys in the church family who help us lead help us drive the mission to help people find and follow Jesus, not just here in Asheville, but also around the world. And so I've said this a dozen or more times since I've been here, and I'm going to say it a lot more. Uh, I don't lead this church. This is not a senior pastor-led church. This church is led by a plurality of godly leaders, and I get to be a part of that group. And I want you to understand this morning, that's biblical. That's biblical, and it's healthy. And it's healthy for me, and not only me, it's healthy for us as a church family. So this is, this is kind of what it looks like on a practical basis here at New Life. We meet twice a month. We meet once just to pray. We do nothing except pray. We actually did that this morning, early in the morning before the first service. And so we pray for the sick. We pray for the hurting. We pray for many of you by name. And then we meet again closer to the middle of the month, and we spend about a third of that time 
also praying. So you see a very consistent theme of prayer in the times that we meet. So we pray again, and then we deal with any issues that are facing us as a church family. So, for example, uh, last month in October, we spent a lot of time talking about culture. Talking about culture, talking about how we can engage culture around us, right? So we'll talk about any church discipline issues that we need to handle. Uh, For example, if we have any new people that come in, they happen to be Auburn football fans, we'll really bust out some serious church discipline, try to get them in order, (laughs) orthos. And then we, we talk about things like shift and strategy. We talk about finances, just like all the organizational aspects of leading a healthy and growing church. And it's a fun group of guys. We enjoy hanging out with each other. We all count it a privilege and a high honor to lead this body called New Life Church. And I just want you to understand, this isn't, this isn't like a burden for me. Like, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful I'm not out on an island trying to lead by myself. I have a group of godly men around me to help me lead and shepherd uh, this church. And so Paul is about to lay out for us the characteristics of these leaders, of elder leadership for us. But as we go through this list, uh, I think, I would argue that these should also be characteristics that every follower of Jesus strives for in their lives. Okay, so, so this is the floor for elder leadership, but all of us should desire for our lives to look like this. So as we go through these today, yes, filter church leadership in light of these qualifications, but let me also just challenge you to filter your own life through this lens as well. So what Paul's about to give us, kind of twofold, the profile of of an elder, but also the mark of every believer, okay? Verse six, he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, now remember, that's just another word for elder. It's used interchangeably. For an overseer or elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Second time Paul has used that language. He must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Okay, so that's what he shouldn't be. Now Paul's about to give us what he should be. But hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is biblical truth that Paul is referring to. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke or to correct those who contradict it. So Paul starts by giving a general qualification that church leaders, that elder leadership must be above reproach. That just means that they must be of unquestionable character. That doesn't mean that they live a perfect life. Nobody lives a perfect life outside of Jesus Christ. But this guy has to have a strong reputation in the community, a strong reputation in his neighborhood, in his workplace, of being a man of high integrity and high moral character. And then Paul gets more specific with what it means to live a life that's above reproach. And so Paul is essentially going to give us three categories that should mark the lives of elders, and I would argue should mark the life of every follower of Jesus, right? But these are minimum standards for uh, elders, uh, but that should be the mark that we all are striving for together as a faith family. So the first mark he gives us, letter A, is these guys have to be faithful to their families. 
have to be faithful, must be. That's a prerequisite. Must be faithful to their families. So Paul says he's got to be the husband of one wife. I don't think that's actually the best translation of the Greek there. I think the better, more accurate translation there is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. So that just simply means this guy, if he's married, and these guys don't have to be married, by the way. Paul was a single man. Jesus was obviously single. I think we would all agree that both those guys were qualified to be elders. But if he is married, he's got to love his wife like crazy. He's got to love his wife like, like crazy. Does he have eyes for only her? Now, this most definitely, I believe, is a reference to sexual fidelity, faithfulness to his wife. But I would argue that it's more than that. Is this guy, a, is he a flirt in the office when his wife isn't around? What does this social media interaction look like? What do, what does private messages look like with other women? Do women feel uncomfortable around this guy because of inappropriate comments or inappropriate ways that he interacts with them? This guy must be all about his wife and faithful to her in every way. If a man can't manage a healthy marriage, how's he going to manage a church? This idea of faithfulness to his family, Paul then extends from not just faithfulness to his wife, but also extends to his own children. Paul says his children ought to be believers. That Greek word can also be translated faithful. So this idea that his children are not out of control. And he follows that up by saying they shouldn't be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, this guy has to know how to raise his kids. This guy has to know how to disciple his own children at home, how to shepherd them spiritually. He has to know how to discipline his kids. We talked about this in detail last week, by the way. So his, his children shouldn't be out of control, little wild devils running around wreaking havoc in the city. That shouldn't, shouldn't be the children of the leaders of the church. He's got to be able to shepherd his own family well before he can shepherd hundreds of other people and families in a local church. This guy's got to be faithful to his family in every way. And again, this shouldn't just be for church leaders. This ought to be the goal for every single follower of Jesus. Like this should just be like the profile of every Christian ever, right? The dude must be faithful to his family, to his wife and his kids. The second mark, B, he's got to be faithful in his conduct. Go back to verse 7. He says, for an overseer or elder or pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he ought to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul says, this guy, these guys can't be arrogant. This guy's got to be a humble man. This guy's not quick-tempered, right? This guy cannot have a short fuse. This is not the guy that you see on I-240 during rush hour giving people the bird. That's, that's not who we're looking for in church leadership, right? Paul says he also, he can't be a drunkard. You see a guy stumbling around Friday night downtown. This is, this is not the qualities we're looking for in church leadership. He can't be violent. The Greek word there literally means striker. He can't be a striker. He can't be a brawler. He can't be a fighter. He can't be a violent man. And also he can't be uh, selfish for greedy gain. So this doesn't mean um, that all pastors and elders have to take a, a vow of poverty or something. 
but it means that our, our life's ambition is not to make lots of money. Our life's ambition is not to live in the biggest, nicest house in our neighborhood or to drive the fanciest cars on the block. You know, they have, they have a different focus, another focus, another mission in life. And so these are the characteristics that cannot be present in the lives of church leadership. And then he gives us a list of things that should mark their lives or their conduct. So he says, they must be hospitable. And that word literally means lover of strangers. I love that, don't you? The lover of strangers. So this guy has people in his home. This guy has friends. This guy is a normal down-to-earth guy. This isn't some like ivory tower guy who's inaccessible. He should have people regularly at his dinner table. He should be living life with people. He doesn't have a security detail or a metal detector at his house. He's just like a normal guy who loves Jesus and loves people. And then Paul says he should be a lover of good. He should love the things that God loves. He should be a champion for good causes. He cares about the least of these, the widow, the orphan, the abused, the enslaved, the voiceless. He loves good. And then Paul says he's got to be self-controlled. He's got to be upright. He's got to be holy. He's got to be disciplined. Like this is just a picture of a man who is self-controlled and disciplined by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. This man is not out of control. He's not wild. He doesn't live his life in a haphazard way. This is a man that you can count on. This is a man that you want to be around. This is the guy that you want to go grab lunch with or grab coffee with because he's consistent. He loves what is good. He loves God and he loves people. So this guy is faithful to his family. He is faithful in his conduct. And there's one more area of faithfulness that marks the lives of church leaders. Look at verse nine. Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also able to rebuke or correct those who contradict it. So Mark 3, our letter C, is he must be faithful to the truth. This man is not a wishy-washy man when it comes to God's word. This is not a man who's blown around by the shifting sands of cultural popularity. Like we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to get on this soapbox because I'll preach for another hour, but we've talked about this before. This is far too common in our churches in America, not just among individual pastors and churches, but across entire denominations where it seems to me they just kind of lick their finger and hold it up in the air and see which way the cultural winds are blowing, and they go that way, and they flow that way. What's popular? Let me go that way so that I don't have to stand against any sort of retribution. And Paul would say, I think, those men are not fit to lead my church. Those men are cowards. They're not pastors. They're not elders. This man knows the word. And he does two things primarily with the word as he helps shepherd the church. He gives instruction and he rebukes or he corrects. So he's able to teach the word and he's also able to correct false teaching, right? So an elder has to know his stuff. These guys have to be able to sniff out false doctrine from a mile away. These men are faithful to the truth. They are faithful to God's word and they know their stuff. So an elder must be faithful to his family. He must be faithful in his conduct. And he must be faithful to the truth of God's word. By the way, that's what we look for in elders here at New Life. We're not looking for like the 
the good-looking guy, the charismatic personality with a million-dollar smile. We're not looking for the guy who's really successful in business and makes tons of money or whatever. We're looking for faithful men. Not perfect men, because none of us are perfect outside of Jesus, but we're looking for faithful men. And that's what you should expect from your leadership here at New Life. And by the way, that's what we should all be striving for in our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, here's the rub, and we're almost done. The rub for most of us, or at least many of us if you're like me, is at times we can come across lists like this in the Scriptures And if you're a list person, you love stuff like this, right? Because you can just go check, 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 check. I did all that today. But if you're like me, if you're not careful, you can also look look at lists like this in the Scripture, and at times you can feel defeated. You can just feel defeated. Some of you may feel defeated this morning as you filter your own life through these lists. Because here's the reality. None of us, none of us match up to these lists perfectly all the time. And that's really bad news. But here's here's the good news. Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And that's the gospel. That Jesus came into this messed up world. That by the way, we wrecked and we messed up. He came into this mess that we created and he lived the perfect life that all of us should have lived that he died a a brutal death to to pay for or to atone for our, our sin and our rebellion in order to make us right with God. And because of what Jesus has done, now his righteousness, when we trust and follow him, becomes our righteousness. Which means, and listen, understand, if, like, if you've tuned out, tune back in. Don't, don't miss this. That, that means that one day when you stand before God and every person in this room will one day stand before their creator. And when you do that, on that day, if you are in Jesus, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your messed up life. He looks and he sees Jesus. And he sees his perfect life. He sees his sacrificial death and his blood covers all your mess and all your sin and all the way that we've all messed up. And that all is applied to you. When God sees you on that final day, that's what he sees. And that is good news. And so as you pursue this life of faithfulness and holiness that Paul just lays before Titus that really should be characteristic of every follower of Christ, I want you to understand this morning, we get to do that from a place of freedom, not from a place of guilt. Because Jesus has already done everything for us. We don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done that for us. And so we get to live our lives becoming more and more like Jesus from a place full of love and acceptance. Not because of anything that we've done in our lives, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That's incredible news. And so I just want to say, you know, as we get ready to land the plane this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not there, you're just not a follower of Jesus, and who knows, maybe you were invited by a trusted friend or you just stumbled across our website on Google or whatever, or maybe maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've been here for many years, and maybe you're a really religious person, you're a really churchy person, but as you kind of examine your life through this list that Paul gives the church, you would say, man, I'm concerned. Like, I, I think maybe I'm religious, but I've never been born again. 
Like I've never had God actually come into my life and wreck me in the best way possible and give me a, a new life and a new purpose and new goals and a new way of thinking in my life. And I have never experienced that. Like I know all the Sunday school answers. I know all the Bible answers. But I've never been wrecked by God. I've never had my life changed by God. If that's you this morning, I just want you to know that Jesus invites you to come to him today. Not tomorrow. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. None of us are promised tomorrow. Today is the day. And so I just want to encourage you in just a moment, we're going to have the band come up here, and we're going to close with a song. And I want you to know that as soon as that song is over, every single Sunday we have a group of elders who stand up here, and we're here to pray for you. And we want to pray for you. And we want to know what's going on in your life so we know how to pray for you and how we can come alongside and how we can help you. And so I would just encourage you. I would implore you. I would plead with you. Come and talk to us. We're here to shepherd you, to love you well. Please come up. Give us the opportunity to pray with you, to walk alongside you in the challenges of your life. And if you don't have time, you should have gotten a connection card that's inside of your bulletin. If you'll fill that thing out and you'll fold it up, and we have two wooden boxes with our church logo. If you'll drop those in, we'll pick them up. We'll pray for you. If we need to contact you, have coffee, whatever, we will do that this week. But let me just encourage you, if God is stirring something in your heart, if he's stirring something in your soul, don't leave until you've settled on a decision. Because I know what your life is like. Your life is a lot like mine. As soon as I walk out of this building and I get in my car, I'm going to have like 10,000 thoughts that bombard me about what I need to do. And whatever I feel like God is telling me is just going to like fall through the cracks. It's going to fall by the wayside. And so let me just encourage you, take whatever step God is telling you to take. If it's following Jesus, awesome. If it's following him in baptism like we're seeing every week, Awesome, let's do that. If it's joining a community group so you have friends and Christians around you, do that. Whatever God is telling you, make that decision before you leave today. Let me pray for us as the band comes. God in heaven, thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans. God, you've given us your word. You've given us your son. You've sent your spirit to indwell us, to guide us as your children. God, we have, we have literally everything that we need to become the people that you've designed us to be. People who love you with everything that we have. People who love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, our might. We just love you. You've given us everything we need to be people like that. And not just people that, that love you, people that care about others, love others, God. And so help us to become those people that impact the world around us, God. That point them to you, God. Let them see in our lives. Let them see that you are good. Let them see that you are worthy of giving their lives away to. Father, help us to live in that grace today when we leave this place and tomorrow when we wake up and we have to go to a job that we really don't want to go to or go to a class that we really would rather not go to and just face the challenges of our world in our life. God, help us just to bathe in your grace, just to swim in the good news of your gospel, God. 
and realize that it's impossible for us to live a life like Paul just described to Titus on our own, in our own strength. It's impossible. We're too weak, we're too frail, we're too sinful, we're too rebellious in our hearts. God, we can't, we can't live that life without you. And yet God has given us his spirit, has given us his word, God, and in his strength, we can walk in obedience and we can live lives that matter. So God, as we pursue that type of life and walking by your spirit and loving you with everything that we have, God, Help us invite other people, other people to the table of grace, God. And we know that that can only be found in Jesus. The type of grace, the type of transformation is only found in Christ, God. It's in his beautiful name that we ask and we pray for these things. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.